Well, the number is increasing. As of this morning, U.S. Census.gov says that there are over 8 billion people in the world and counting. 8 billion people spread out across all kinds of different countries and geographical regions with different ethnicities and different dialects. There are people all over the place. Well, so many people in so many places, there's still something drastically missing. I wonder if I ask you, what, what's the one thing you think is most missing in the world? What would you say? Peace? Love? Respect? Joy or happiness? Each one of those can be contenders for having a rightful claim to what the world is most missing at this current moment. But, but if you press me to find maybe one specific thing that the world is most missing as we sit here this morning, if you pinned it down to one thing, I think I might say the one thing the world is most missing is all. The world is most missing all. We've lost a sense of awe at anything. I mean, how can we when, when everything is presented to us at a breakneck pace? Everything is presented as very important. Everything is breaking news. I mean, even this past week, my ESPN app was blowing up. Because on successive days, successful coaches were either being fired or retiring. One minute it was Pete Carroll, the next day it was Nick Saban, the next day it was Bill Belichick. You turn on the ESPN, all the different kind of things from first take to get up, all of them to SportsCenter were saying, we've never seen back-to-back -back days like this. Perhaps even more seismic that everybody is talking about is that Cat Williams that went off on the internet and broke the whole internet with his recent interview on Club Shay Shay. You haven't seen that, you don't need to go see that. This is not an endorsement. We are engrossed with and enthralled by those kinds of things. And so we click and we scroll and we read and we post and we repost and we comment and we follow and we keep on following and we search and we search and search until we find the next thing that captivates our attention. Because nothing and no one seems to grab it long enough. Friends, I'll contend that that's a problem with us. When we keep on digging in the desert, trying to find things that satisfy us. When we forsake the Lord and seek to find living waters in the midst of the sand. When we keep searching for new things to grip us. Well, this morning, I think the Bible means to confront us head on with that problem. and means to fill us with awe as we look at the awesome God of creation. And so if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And this morning we'll look at verses 3 through 25 together. Genesis chapter 1, you can find it on page 1 of your Bibles. If you need a Bible, you can look under your seats. 
and there should be a Bible in the seat in front of you or behind you. Feel free to take that Bible home as our gift to you if you don't have a Bible that you can easily read and understand. If you've got a Bible that your mom or grandma or great aunt gave you years ago, that's a KJV, that's a good translation of the Bible. But if you find it hard to read the these and the thous, we'll take that Bible under the seat as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have your own copy of God's Word. All right, we believe that the most important thing is not just that the preacher can read the Bible, but that the people can read the Bible, right? And even as I preach, I want you looking at the Bible, right, to see if what I'm saying is what's in the text, right? That's a good way to, 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 to grab hold if there's a good church in that, is the preacher following along in the Bible, right? And to know that, you need to follow along in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, this morning we'll, we'll look at verses 3 to 25 together. Would you follow along with me as I read Genesis chapter one, starting at verse three, we read, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth 
according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now notice first off just a few observations from this text. First, notice how this is a highly structured narrative account. In total, there are seven days of creation, although we'll only cover the first six and a half this morning. Uh, seven is an important number in Hebrew. It, it represents perfection. And seven is a prominent feature in Genesis chapter one in the creation account. I mean, where we were last week in Genesis chapter one, verse one in the original Hebrew in which the Old Testament was written in Genesis chapter one, verse one, they are exactly seven words. And then in Genesis chapter one, verse two, there are exactly 14 words, seven times two. Here, the very next verse, starting in Genesis chapter one, verse three, we see consecutively seven days in the creation account. On the seventh day, the Lord rested. Seven, 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 seven. The original Hebrew readers would have immediately caught this word, this number, seven, 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 being constantly presented. It was meant to signal that God was creating a perfect world by continuing to talk about the number of perfection. Seven, seven, seven. You also notice the, the common formula that we see in each day of this account of God creating elements to put in his created world. I mean, notice here, there's a kind of general formula. First, God speaks, right? We read over and over and God said. Uh, secondly, then God commands. When God speaks, he doesn't just pontificate. He doesn't just express a wish or a desire. No, he gives an authoritative command. Let there be. Third, we see over and over a fulfillment of the command. We see that the thing that God commands comes into being. Let there be, and there was, and it was so. Fourth, then we see God commending what he's created. Right after he's made the things on each day, he looks back like a proud parent and says it was good. Now, there are more elements in some days than others. Some days you see God separating things. Some involve different other elements, but that's the basic formula we see in each day. And a word briefly about the days here. There's been a lot of controversy among Christians about the term day in this passage, the, the first day, the second day, the third day, on until the seventh day. Some understand the, the term day, not to speak of a literal 24-hour day, but to represent long geological ages. This is sometimes referred to as the day-age theory. Proponents of this position say that the word day can mean a prolonged period of time. And they point to passages like Psalm chapter 90, verse 4, or 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, where we read that, in the Lord's sight, a thousand days are as one day and one day as a thousand years. So some say that this term day here could be a thousand years or longer. Again, in the Lord's sight, one day is as if it were a thousand years. Other people say that days need not to be read literally, but as a kind of literary device. I mean, we already see that this is a highly 
literary book, and the author has already used literary devices by the, the number seven. And, and so each day is, is not to be taken literally, but literarily. Each day kind of an act in the unfolding drama of God's creation of the entire world. Now it's important to note that these two views, the day-age theory and the kind of literary theory of these days are held by legitimate Bible-believing Christians. Godly men and women who believe God made the world and who believe that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God. In other words, we should not dismiss people who hold these views as non-Christians. We should not write them off as heretical. They mean to take the Bible seriously and make sense of both the Bible and the world around us. Christians cannot be quick to cancel folks. This is not a matter of salvation. It's not that weighty. Everything in the Bible is important. Everything in the Bible isn't as weighty as everything else. When we reach the judgment seat, God is not going to ask, did you get the days right? <laughs> God is going to ask, what did you do with my son? All right. All, right. All that to say, treat the Bible important, right? But don't maximize everything as level 1A, torch you to the ground, cancel you as a Christian if we don't agree on it. All that said, I think the most natural and plain reading of this text Leads us to think of these days here as six literal 24-hour days in which the world created all that we see around us. I mean, I think that's the way the original Hebrews would have most easily, naturally understood this text. They would have not thought at all about any geological ages. As a matter of fact, it seems like the author Moses seems to intentionally point out that there's evening that passes into morning, making up one literal physical day. I'm probably using the Jewish understanding of a day beginning at sunset and ending at nightfall. That's why he starts with there was evening and then there was morning. In any case, what this whole narrative is leading us to acknowledge and to be in awe of is not the days, but what the days point to. The main point of this passage that we are to be shocked by, amazed by, in awe of is that God alone brings life and order. To his entire good creation through his authoritative word. That's the main point of our passage this morning. God alone brings life and order to his good creation through his authoritative word. As we consider that main idea this morning, we see exactly what God does in bringing life. And even there, we see structure in this text. In verses 3 through 13, we see that God forms the earth that he's made. That's point number one. And then in verses 14 through 25, we see that God fills the earth that he's made. That's point number two. And that's significant because where we left off last week was with God creating the universe by his power in verse one. But the universe was an uninhabitable place. Verse two says the earth was without form and void and, and empty. Well, starting in verse three, God goes to work remedying the, the problem and readying the earth for his people. The earth was without form, and so he forms it. The earth that was empty, he fills. And we see both things in this text. As we walk through this text together, and these six days of God creating, we also continue to see what it shows us about God himself and the implications for our lives. 
So point number one, God forms. God forms. Again, the backdrop is a formless, void, empty, and dark universe. Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. Notice here the connection between these two verses. Verse 2 leaves us with the Spirit hovering over the dark universe covered in water. And then verse 3, God speaks to change the situation, to bring light and life. Friends, God's Spirit always brings life through God's Word. So if you're looking for a church where the Spirit is alive and active, you don't need to go to a church where people are falling all over themselves claiming that the Spirit has slain me. That's not evidence that the Spirit is alive and active. You need to go to a church where the Word is faithfully unfolded and preached. The Spirit powerfully works through God's Word. God speaks and things happen. Just the fact that God speaks in and of itself is important. It's one of the many things that differentiate, that separate God from all the false gods. All the false gods and idols worshipped by all the nations surrounding the people of Israel had one thing in common. They couldn't talk. The psalmist in Psalm chapter 115 verses 4 and 5 says of the nations, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Not so with Israel's God. With the true God, he speaks. And everything around the Israelites was a testimony to that fact because everything they saw with their eyes was a direct result of God speaking. Moses means to bring that to bear by the repeated refrains, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. After it's all said and done, after you get through the whole of Genesis chapter 1, Moses writes, and God said 10 times, which would have been important for the Israelites because they were to live by the 10 words that God would ultimately give them in the 10 commandments. Where did it come from? Well, God had given 10 words before. God speaks and his people live and are to be sustained. This God is no mute idol. He is the true and living and life-giving God. He brings about life through his word. Here on this first day of God's creative acts on earth, he says, let there be light. And there was light. It begins the theme we see throughout the Bible of darkness being seen as, as the lack of something good with its counterpart, light representing God's good presence. God's breaking through into the darkness and bringing light. We, we read that God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness and the light he called day and the darkness he called night. But there's something of an issue here, it seems. Maybe you picked up on it. You noticed it as we read the entire passage. Some of you reached out to me this week to, to talk about it. There's light here in day one of verse three. But then verse 14 says that the sun and moon and stars aren't made until day four. How can there be light without the sun? The sun is our source of light. Well, because even above the sun, beyond the sun, God is the ultimate source of light. 
We read that not only here at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, but also at the end of the Bible in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 23, in describing the new heavens and the new earth, the the new Jerusalem, we read the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. As one commentator notes, light precedes the sun, and light outlasts the sun. Light is not dependent on sun and moon, but on God. God can cause light to shine without the sun and without the moon. God supernaturally brings light out of darkness. This Genesis 1-3 passage then becomes the basis by which later biblical authors talk about God doing that again. Supernaturally bringing light into a dark place. We've talked about it before. The Apostle John in John chapter 1 talks about Jesus Christ, the Word of God, uh, coming to bring light into a dark world. John begins his gospel in John chapter 1 saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not a thing was made that has been made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus came into a dark world filled with sin and lived a sinless, spotless life, dying in our place and rising again from the grave so that we could be saved. He pushed back, as it were, the curtain of darkness that stood against us so that we might have life, spiritual life forevermore which is how the Apostle Paul then uses this Genesis passage to refer to God supernaturally bringing light and life into a dark place, not just at the creation of the earth and not just in the creator of the earth coming to earth in Jesus Christ, but also in the creation of conversion that faith in Christ brings. Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, That God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The darkest place in the universe is no longer a formless, empty earth. The darkest place in the universe is now a hardened human heart filled with sin and rebellion against God. Dead to spiritual realities and dead to spiritual glories. But God, just as he spoke once before to a dark world and immediately brought light, even now speaks to dark hearts through the preaching of the word pointing to the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And he says, let there be lights. And just as at the beginning, it was so. There was light. Every single one of us this morning who are here as Christians are evidence of that. God spoke and he turned on the light in our hearts. The Jesus that once looked so boring and so weak and so dull suddenly seemed glorious. The gospel that once seemed so unbelievable and ineffective suddenly proved powerful. God spoke and the Spirit gave us life and light. 
our prayer then this morning is, Lord, do it again. Do it again. There are dark hearts, no doubt, in a room this size. Lord, turn on the lights in some folks' hearts. The Lord has to work, and the Lord can powerfully work through his word, just as he did on the beginning, just as he did on day one to bring lights. We move on to day two, where we see that God forms the sky to separate the waters from the waters. That's what we read about in verses six through eight. Verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Elsewhere in the Bible, that word for expanse in in verse 6, that's later called heaven in verse 8, is simply translated sky. Before the world was covered in water, we read that in in, in verse 2, right? The spirit was hovering over the, the face of the deep, over the waters. But now God separates the waters below from the waters above. And he does it by creating this horizontal area that we see when we look up, sometimes blue, sometimes gray, the sky. I find that kind of amazing. Even if it's often overlooked. I mean, when you go outside and lift up your head, it testifies about God. Everything in creation shouts, I'm put here by him. And what does it say about him? Oh, that he's over us, above us. I mean, just think about the length of the sky. It has no end, right? There's no edge that you kind of pull up to kind of pull back the sky. If the sky that God created is endless, How much more unending must the God who created the sky be? And just think of the the sky's heights. I mean, who can measure the depth from the top of the sky to earth? Nobody can. Neither then can we measure then how much greater God is than us. I mean, that's a feature that the Bible highlights in talking about how God's wisdom and God's ways are far greater than ours. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, we we read there that that God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. But not only do the heavens and their great distance from us speak about God's great wisdom more than ours, but it also speaks of God's great love for us. Psalm chapter 103, verses 10 and 11, uh, the Lord says he, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Yes, he forms a sky to separate the waters, but he also forms that sky high above us and uses it, uses it in the rest of his word to testify of his great love for us. You look up and you keep on looking up and you're looking at all the love that the Lord has filled up from that space to us for you. As far as the, the, the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to you. Some of y'all need to hear that this morning. Whatever you're going through, however messed up and miserable it feels, the Lord's love is great to you. On the third day, God continues forming. 
Here he forms the waters that he's left below the sky and he puts them into place. Look with me at verse 9. We read, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. In the ancient Near East, the culture in which the original recipients of this book lived, the people of Israel, the seas were, were thought to be evil and uncontrollable. The sea had a mind of its own. Even in, in many of the cultures surrounding Israel, the sea was a god of its own. But here God controls the sea. God controls the waters. In the previous verses, he, he separated the waters above from waters below. Now he separates the waters below from each other gathering them into their own specific regions through the world's first and most powerful ever wet vac. God's very word. God speaks and all the flowing waters get sucked up and sectioned off into one specific place so that dry land appears. And then once these things are separated, they stay separated. God puts limits, puts fences over the seas that are raging and says, thus far you shall come and no further. So that they can only cross over one inch into dry land if the Lord says so. God speaks and the seas listen. God speaks and the sea falls back so that the earth is formed. The creation listens to its creator. Centuries later, the Lord again showed who controls the seas. In Mark chapter 5, verses 35 through 41, you, you might remember the story. We read that Jesus and his disciples are, are out on the sea of Galilee when a great storm arises. And we read that the waves were breaking into the boat so that the, the water started to overcome the ship and it was about to sink. And the disciples are freaking out because they do not want to lose their lives. And in the midst of this great storm on the sea, Jesus is at the bottom of the ship snoring. And they go and shaking them up as he's up there snoring. And they say, Master, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It's a word we ask God sometimes, don't we? In the midst of life's seemingly uncontrollable circumstances, things that bring most fear, things that seem to be threatening to swallow us up like a storm. Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? Mark chapter 5, verse 39 says, and Jesus woke up. And he walked out to the top of the boat. And the text tells us that he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And instantly the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Verse 41 of Mark chapter 4. And the disciples were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? There's only one answer. The one whom the wind and the sea always obey. The, the one whom the sea and the wind have to obey when he speaks, the Lord himself. God's control over the seas shows God's sovereign power. Right. 
a sovereign power that Jesus also, the eternal Son of God, equal with the Father and with the Son in every divine perfection, also possesses and demonstrated. Friends, the whole Bible fits together and the whole Bible points to him. And so if you're here this morning denying Jesus, believing false claims that Jesus never said that he was God, just look at what Jesus did. And look at how the Bible, even at the very beginning of creation, portrays these actions as only things that God can do. Who else can speak and the seas listen? The one who owns and controls the seas. God in these first three days in verses 3 through 13 speaks and forms his creation. And notice carefully, closely, the, the three geographical areas now that he's formed. In separating the, the waters from above, from the waters below, he's formed a sky. And in separating the, the waters below from one another and gathering them into distinct places, he's formed the, the seas. And in allowing then the dry places to appear, he's formed the land. And the land he forms is not a desert. It is not futile, but rather fertile. Look at verses 11 through 13. We we read that to this newly formed land, God speaks and upsprouts all this kind of vegetation, plants of every kind and fruit trees of every kind, broccoli and Brussels sprouts, pineapples and pomegranates, all spring forth from the word of God. All All these things that will provide food for the creatures that God will soon put on the land animals and and humans. God forms a land that will provide for them before they are even created and know that they need provision. (laughs) I think it reminds us of God's good care. I mean, just think of all the varieties of crops that God created. Uh, Only one could have been suitable. Only one was perhaps needed, but he provides an abundance of different kinds of fruits and vegetables to delight his creatures to show off his goodness. Israel, whom God was calling into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, was to be reminded that it was the land that God prepared, that God formed for them, that God formed for us to cheer and to satisfy us. My parents and and kids, I think that's why it's so helpful to do that seemingly small thing, but very significant thing of before every meal, bowing your head and saying grace, giving thanks to God. We see the Bible gives us warrant for that here because every single thing that we see on our plates has its foundation first in God. The Lord provided it. Not mom, not dad, not the paycheck. Not the farmer, not the crop. All those things are downstreams. The first cause, the efficient cause is the Lord himself. And we should praise him for it. Verses 3 through 13, representing days 1 through 3 of God's creating order in his good creation, shows us all that God forms, sky and seas and lands. Now, starting in verses 14 on, representing days four through six of the creation week, we see God filling what he's formed. That brings us to our second point. God fills. God fills. Notice how starting in verse 14, the author corresponds, intentionally corresponds days four through six of God's creative works with days one through three. 
In day one, God forms the light. In day four, he, he fills that light out with luminaries, with individual elements that bring light. In day two, God forms the sky, separating the waters above from the waters below. In day five, God fills the sky with birds and fills the waters below with sea creatures. In day three, God forms the, the sea and the lands. And in day six, God fills the land with land animals. It's got kind of perfect symmetry, order, purpose in it all. All from the hand of the Lord himself. Let's look closer at these kind of days, four through six together. Look with me at verse 14 through 19 as we read about day four. We read, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to, to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and it was evening and it was morning, the fourth day. God has already supernaturally said, let there be lights. Now he says, let there be individual lights that mark the seasons and the days and the years and that give ongoing light to the earth. What are these lights? We read this in verse 16, there's two great lights. There's the greater one that rules the day and the lesser one that rules the night. That greater one refers to the sun and the lesser one refers to the moon. Why doesn't Moses then simply call them the sun and the moon? Well, perhaps to, to even subtly undermine the beliefs of all the pagan nations who surrounded Israel. All these pagan people surrounding them who worship the sun and moon as great gods. Here, Moses doesn't even give them the honor of being formally named. They're simply lights created by the great God. But don't allow Moses' subliminal labeling of these two lights to minimize the size and significance of these lights. I mean, the greater light, the sun, is a marvelous creation. It is incredibly big, 865,000 miles in diameter. Uh, to put that in perspective, you could fit 1.3 million Earths within the sun. Not only is it incredibly big, it is incredibly bright. You cannot stare at that sun unless you got some thick Ray-Bans on. It's not only incredibly big and incredibly bright, it's incredibly hot. NASA scientists estimate that the core of the sun is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Far too hot for any human to go near, but not too hot for God to handle. Genesis 1.17 says that God set the sun in the sky like he was hanging a picture on the wall. <laughs> and he set it at a distance far enough from the earth that the earth is not scorched by it and yet close enough to provide the light and the heat and the energy that we need to sustain. As vast and as powerful and as essential as the sun is, its presence speaks of a more vast, more powerful, more essential being, the God who made it himself. The sun is created and placed by him. 
as is the lesser light, the moon, which God created to rule the night and the stars. <laughs> it's kind of funny. The stars are kind of mentioned as a kind of afterthought at the end of verse 16, as a kind of aside, which is amazing seeing how many brilliant stars there are. No one knows the exact number, but the latest estimate is that there are 200 sextillion stars. Don't nobody know what a sextillion is. If y'all do, y'all stunting. Right? In other words, there are 200 billion trillion stars. 200 billion trillion stars. And, and remember how, how I just talked about how, how vast the sun is? Well, there are stars far greater than the sun. In fact, in the, in the kind of created order, the, the sun is, is seen as a kind of mid-sized star. Right. They are far greater stars when compared to the 200 sextillion others. Amazingly, every single one of these 200 sextillion, 200 billion trillion stars are placed in the sky strategically by God, lighting up the sky with their brilliant radiance. I mean, if you want to see just how amazing a star is, go online and look at images from the Hubble telescope. Their, their whole universes, oh, light shows that will kill any 4th of July show in the mall, right? Look at the stars. And perhaps even more amazingly, God knows every single one of these brilliant 200 sextillion stars by name. Psalm chapter 147, verse 4, he, he determines the numbers of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. It speaks something of the grandeur of God's creation, but also of God's tender care for his creation. He knows them by name, which is how later biblical authors speak of God's vast creation of things like the multitude of the stars. That God amazingly knows and cares for them. And even more amazingly, that God knows and cares for us. May consider another psalm, Psalm chapter 8, which reflects on Genesis chapter 1. There the psalmist David says in Psalm 8 verses 3 and 4, when, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, him and the son of man that you care for him? David is absolutely awestruck when he looks up at the night sky. When I consider all the stars that you have created that perfectly do your bidding, when I see their splendor and how they radiantly reflect your glory without ever bucking back, why then do you care about me with my messed up life, with my sin-filled life, with my more often than not wretched rather than radiant life? Well, he cares because he cares. The most splendid stars he cares about and the most messed up sinful person he cares about. The God so great as to make the multitude of stars tenderly takes note of you and me. The God who knows them by name knows us. He's not remote. He's not removed from his creation. He's intimately involved. And friends, let the stars convince you of his grandeur. 
Let the stars convince you of God's good care for you. The sun, the moon, and the stars are meant to point to him. Which means that we should not use those things that God created for any other reasons. You shouldn't worship the stars, the sun, and the moon as gods like Israel's pagan neighbors did. Neither should you look to them for direction or guidance in your life as so many people in our day are tempted to do. Friends, in other words, you should not place any hope in horoscopes. It matters zero if you know your zodiac sign or if others know your zodiac sign. It has no bearing on who you are or what this week ahead has planned for you. The sun and the moon and the stars have no inherent authority to influence you. The sun, the moon, and the stars are made by God. Seek him for guidance. Worship him alone. If you want to see a clear biblical picture of how things like the stars are meant to point us to God and not to the star itself, read Matthew chapter 2, where the wise men, these astrologers from the east, show up to King Herod's palace and ask in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. And you know where that star ultimately led them? To the place where Jesus, the king of the world, the creator of the world, who'd been born into the world was laying. And when they got there, The text tells us that they bowed down and they worshiped him. That's the proper response. You don't worship the created things, the moon and the stars. You fall down and worship the creator, the Lord Jesus himself. In verses 20 through 23, we see God continue to to feel his good creation as we read of his activity on day five. The waters that he's gathered into place, verse 20 says, he fills with swarms of living creatures. And the sky above that he created, he he fills with all kinds of birds. And some of them he made simply for his own enjoyments. I mean, there are some birds that float so high in the sky that they are out of our sight and we have no notice of them. We don't even know that they exist. And there are some fish that swarm thousands of feet below the sea level down on the ocean floor that no human eye has ever seen. I mean, at the deepest point in the sea at the the bottom of the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean, some 35,000 feet below sea level where no human being has ever touched the the bottom of it. Explorers, the the best that they could do was send down instruments to see what's going on down there. And what they found is that there's there's frigid temperatures and there's no light at all that deep down below in the sea. And yet with cold temperatures and no light, there's life down there at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Down there where there's no light, there's tropical fish floating around. (laughs) How did they get there? God put them there. Why did God even put them there when people can't get there? Well, they ain't for you, right? All things, the Romans tells us, are from him and for him and to him. For his own enjoyment and to display his own glory. (laughs) You ain't the most important person in the world. God is. And when we get that right, everything, as we said last week, falls into place. All his works are good and 
all his works shall praise his name from the highest heights of heavens down to the bottom of the sea. Indeed, that's God's purpose, even in blessing the sea creatures and the birds here, telling them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth so that his extravagance might be seen and celebrated wherever you look. When you look up and when you look down and when you look around, look at the Lord. Lastly, in this passage, we see God's beginning of his work on his last day of creating on day six. Look at verse 24. We read, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. The fruitful, fertile earth that God made on day three, he now fills on day six with all kinds of beasts, big and small. They populate the land at God's mere word. And what they find when they come, when they step foot for the first time on the land is a land that's been prepared for them, filled with all kinds of trees and crops to enjoy, to cause them to survive. The providential plan of God is at work in creation. Everything has a purpose. You know, as you reflect upon the the creation of the land animals here, you think about everything that we see God made in this one day. You just think, okay, dogs and cats, lions and hippos, right? Yeah, bears. You just think of all the little animals, right? It's like amazing, right? You know, one that kind of stands out is that on this day when God is creating everything creatively, thinking about what I'm going to put here, like, what is in God's mind when he's doing it, right? It's just amazing to see. Well, among all these animals that God creates is the lamb. The lamb that Israel, reading this account for the first time, would have been so familiar with. The lamb that was slain on the night of their exodus from Egypt. The the, the lamb whose blood was spread over their doorposts so that when the Lord passed through in judgment, bringing death upon the land, that he would pass over their doorposts when he saw the blood of the, the lamb. The lamb that they would subsequently sacrifice over and over again as they worshiped their God through this sacrificial system where the blood of the lambs would cause there to be remission of their sins until the next season of sacrifice. Well, God created that lamb that was so prevalent in the life of Israel's worship back here on day six so that it would later, one of the purposes later, serve that purpose for the people of Israel. But more ultimately, On this day six, God created something like a lamb for the purpose of of pointing forward figuratively to the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who came and died on the cross, who shed his blood, not over a doorpost, but on a cross so that all those who turn from their sins and trust in him might be saved. God, in his amazing wisdom and sovereign plan, created a lamb. And, And that lamb would point to our crucified and risen Savior. The whole of creation to this point is preparatory. It's preparing for the creation of God's crown creation, man and woman, which we'll see next week. And even then, the creation of man and woman is pointing forward to salvation, to the very God who made man in his image, then becoming a man to save those in his image who rebelled against him. In the person 
of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We read all these passages, these verses in Genesis chapter 1, and we zoom out and we stand back and, and look at the whole of Genesis 1 so far. God is meaning to fill in the missing pieces in our lives to focus our attention upward to the skies and downward to the seas and all around us on the lands and see everything that he has made by the mere power of his word. And he's meaning to fill our satisfaction craving souls with awe. Awe of him and awe of his awesome works through his awesome word. Look to him, praise him, worship him. He is good and he alone is God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that testifies to your power, your goodness, your great, great uh, graciousness, your greatness, your provision, your sacrifice even for sinners like us. Oh Lord, we pray that you would explode our hearts to see you as big, better than anything that captivates our minds and hearts now. I pray that you would bring light into hard, dark hearts this morning. Oh Lord, point us to your goodness and your greatest work of all, creating new beings in the image of Christ through the death and the resurrection of your son. Satisfy us in him, we pray. Show us your greatness, that we might sing of your greatness from now to forevermore. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.